Welcome all to the Developmentor Podcast, your source for interviews and content on careers and technology. I'm your host, Grant Ingersoll. For those of you who are new to the show, we have three goals. We want to showcase interesting people in tech across a variety of roles. We want to highlight the different paths people take in their careers. And most importantly, we want to help you find your path. If you want to learn more, please visit our website at developmentor.com. We're going on 40 plus episodes and there's still not a show that goes by where I'm not in awe of all the awesome things my guests have done, whether it's learning to code on their own or foregoing their preordained path to take a different route in tech. Today's guest is no different as she is an MIT grad in brain and cognitive sciences who promptly spent three years working as a professional chef in both New York City and San Francisco. After realizing the lifestyle wasn't sustainable, she returned to coding and then went into technical recruiting. She's also been an independent consultant and a director of talent for Udacity. These days, she's the CEO of interviewing.io, a company setting out to change the way people get hired. Please welcome to the show, Aileen Lerner. Aileen, great to have you here. It's so great to be here. Thank you for that amazing introduction. Yeah, and Aileen, you know, thanks for joining me. It's not often that we have a, a professional chef churned coder churned tech recruiter. You know, I, I hit on a lot of <laughs> a lot of different roles in that lead in. Maybe we can just start off by having you introduce yourself in your own words. Yeah, of course. Um, yeah, I've done a lot of weird stuff. Um, <laughs> kind of the the thing that sort of propelled me always was like boredom <laughs> and I wanted to do things that didn't make me bored and felt like I had some kind of purpose. So yeah, I, I, um, I went to MIT and uh, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. Uh, I wasn't sure I wanted to write code for the rest of my life and I really didn't want to get into academia. That seemed like not quite the right culture fit for me. Uh, so after I graduated, I said, screw it. If I'm going to do something dumb, it should be now. <laughs> and I ended up um, working as a, as a cook for three years. I uh, actually managed a kitchen in New York for a little while. I worked at some amazing Michelin star restaurants in San Francisco. What was really cool about cooking and the thing that really stuck with me, uh, although I didn't realize it at the time was that the way you get hired in a professional kitchen is really, really different than the way you get hired at like a quote unquote real job, right? <laughs> Normally mm. there's, you know, a resume and people ask you about your five-year plan and, and ask you all sorts of silly questions about your strengths and your weaknesses. In kitchens, nobody cares, right? <laughs> Just like mm. show up, bring your knives, chop some onions, and these are the dishes you're responsible for. And then when the restaurant opens during service, you're going to put up these dishes while somebody watches you. And then at the end of the night, if you did a good job, you get fed and you get a job offer. And if you didn't do a good job, maybe they still feed you if they feel sorry for you. But generally, they just politely ask you to leave. Wow. <laughs> and that's that, right? And I just thought that was very honest. And, and um, there was something very appealing about that to me. But, you know, I realized ultimately that I probably wouldn't be Tony Burden, which was my, my goal. <laughs> mm. So um, I, I sort of went back to the thing that I actually knew how to do well, which was write code. Um, ended up doing that for about five years at a small company in San Francisco called ClickTime. They're still around, actually. They've grown a ton. They do time and SaaS time and expense tracking. So it was there, uh, did some eng management toward the end. And one of the things that was always really hard about my job is that it was really hard to hire people for my team. And that seemed strange to me at the time. So I, I wanted to understand that. Secretly, I also didn't want to write code for the rest of my life. So I, I saw this opportunity. I'm like, yeah, there's, there's something here. This seems like a problem where, where I could bring my technical expertise, which was surprising. At the time, it was very surprising to me that technical recruiters were not technical, right? They typically didn't have any kind of engineering background. And despite that, were making value judgments about candidates. Hmm. So... I was like, yeah, I think I can maybe do better because I do have an eng background. And I went and asked some friends who had startups if they'd let me do some hiring for them on the side. So I was still an engineer during the day and I started moonlighting as a recruiter to see if I could do it. Love it. 
Yeah, it was, uh, I mean, it was scary. I was like, I'm not just going to quit my job. What if I'm the worst at this? That's possible. <laughs> Fortunately, I wasn't the worst. Um, I was actually able to make some hires. And then I, I really wanted to explore that further. So I left my job there and then took my first real recruiting job, which I was very fortunate to get. I was head of technical recruiting at a company called Trial Pay. That job was really interesting because not only was I a recruiter, but they're like, oh, you know how to code. Great. Why don't you also do all the first line technical interviews? <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, cool. I think I'll learn something from this. So there were days when I did like six or seven interviews in a row. In that year, I did probably five or 600 interviews as an interviewer, which, wow. <laughs> yeah, right. Thinking back, I don't know how the hell I did that. But at the time, it was also new and, and interesting. I started writing when I was doing that about technical interviewing. And at the time, I thought it would be really, really easy to look at a person's resume, right? Or technical hiring I was writing about. And to look at a person's resume and just based on some attributes, write a classifier <laughs> that could predict whether the person would end up getting an offer or not. So I interviewed a bunch of people, some of whom had terrible resumes, some of whom had great resumes, some of whom were in between. I was taking on the pain of doing it, so nobody stopped me. They're like, great, it's your time, have fun. Um, <laughs> you know, I looked at every attribute on a resume from years of experience to whether somebody went to a top school, to how many programming languages they said they knew, to how many languages they spoke, whether they had a GitHub profile, whether their email was on their own personal domain or, or something else, like 20 different features. And I tried to write this thing. And what I ended up learning, and I, this was the first thing I ever wrote that got any attention, was that the thing that mattered by far, in a way more than anything else, was how many typos and grammatical errors <laughs> a resume had. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god right it was yeah. nuts um, where people went to school didn't matter at all how many programming languages they knew didn't matter at all where they worked in the past mattered some but that mattered less than typos grammatical errors and then just like clarity of the bullet points under each job so like wow. did you actually say what you did or did you just say that you implemented the software development life cycle for the great benefit of company or you know <laughs> whatever people say yeah. so did that and then um, sort of inspired by that finding, I decided to leave trial pay and start my own recruiting firm where I vowed that I would surface great candidates regardless of how they looked on paper. And that was cool. I did that for a couple of years. In that time, I also, in an interim capacity, ran hiring at Udacity, which is a company that I greatly admire because they also had this mission of democratizing access to opportunity. When I was running my recruiting firm, I had all these candidates come to me, many of whom didn't look great on paper because they had read my blog about the typos. <laughs> and they're like, hey, you know, I think I'm a good engineer. Great companies don't think so because I haven't gone to one of these schools and I haven't worked at one of these companies before, but can you give me a chance? Hmm. So I thought, cool, let's try that. And then I ended up interviewing a lot of my own candidates because if I'm going to advocate for them, I want to make sure that I'm putting my name on something good. And yeah. candidates loved it because if they didn't do well, at least I would give them feedback on what they needed to work on, which in real interviews is notoriously lacking, right? You never know what you actually screwed up. And if they did do well, then when I sent their resume to a Dropbox or an Asana or, you know, one of my other clients, I could say, look, I know this candidate doesn't look the way you expect, but trust me, they're totally good. Hmm. And that worked some of the time, but that didn't work all the time because a lot of companies had very specific rules about what kind of candidate they wanted to hire. And that's what gave me the idea to start interviewing IO, which is where I am today, was this idea of like, how can we give candidates value and take resumes off the table entirely? And what we do today really grew out of this very windy path, starting from cooking to uh, counting typos on resumes and ultimately, you know, starting this company. Um, basically, the uh, idea is that we offer engineers completely free, completely anonymous mock interviews. And if they do well in those interviews, regardless of how they look on paper, they unlock our jobs portal where they can look at all the companies that hire through interviewing IO and then just book real technical interviews at those companies 
directly, sort of bypassing having to submit a resume or having their friend refer them or hoping that a recruiter from that company contacts them or hoping that the recruiter that contacted them six months ago is still at that company today, which is a tall order given the turnover in recruiting. To make a long story short, the thing that I'm most proud of about our platform is, well, one, we now hire for a ton of great companies, including Goldman Sachs and Twitter and Microsoft and Uber and a bunch of others, but about 40% of our top performers and by extension, about 40% of the hires that we've made to date are people that frankly don't look very good on paper. We've even had cases where the candidate applied to the company, got rejected based on their resume, got on our platform, did well in practice, booked an interview at this company again, sort of going through the back door and then ended up getting hired. And then the company is like, oh, shit, right? (laughs) 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 But it's not their fault. Like a resume just doesn't tell you very much. And everyone's doing the best they can, but we're really trying to eliminate a lot of these flawed processes and make hiring better for everyone. Yeah. And one, frankly, like, you know, when you get 10,000 resumes in for every role, you got to screen on something. And Yeah, it, you have it, to use something. It's a perfectly reasonable proxy, right, yeah. to screen on these things. It's it's rational. Especially typos, because that's like, I mean, one typo is not going to do it. But if your whole resume is filled with typos, then <laughs> you don't have an eye for detail is how, or, or maybe you don't, you know, speak the language so that you, you, you can see it goes both ways, right? Like one is probably something you do want to filter on. They don't have an eye for detail. The other, not so much. Well, I I disagree, actually. I think it would be different if the resume were something that you did on the spot. But a resume is a document that you have every chance to have somebody review for you, right? And if if you know English is not your first language and, you know, it's not your strong suit to write in English, you should be self-aware enough to get somebody to look at it for you. Yeah. No, no. I mean, I think that's fair, although it, it, it can be challenging for folks. Uh, I want to I come back to interviewing.io because there's so many fascinating things about this for our, for our audience that I think they'll be interested in beyond just like your, your story. But there, there's so many good things in the story here too. And, you know, I want to start off a little bit because, you know, you, you, you mentioned your degree was brain and cognitive science. Like, that's not coding either. Were you <laughs> learning to code during that or was for, for the, you know, so how did the coding part come into, into <laughs> your life? Yeah. I don't know if he's going to be mad at me for telling the truth, but uh, my dad kind of forced me to learn to code. Oh. <laughs> and in retrospect, I'm very grateful to him at the time. I wasn't. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> so Actually, this is kind of a funny story. So my parents and I are immigrants. So we came from the former Soviet Union. Uh, My parents were adults, of course, when they came here. I was six years old. My dad was a scientist, and like many scientists, he ended up deciding to do a career change and do software engineering in lieu of science, because software engineering pays a lot better, and you don't have to write grants all the time, right? (laughs) Right. That, and like in old country, he was like this storied professor, and here he was a postdoc, which, you know. um, So we were living in Wisconsin, and my dad decided that he would take some summer sessions at the University of Wisconsin in programming, and um, he's like, you should do this too. And he and I ended up in two of the same classes. I was like this weird 13-year-old kid that the university made an exception for. Most people in there were like college sophomores and juniors. And then there was my, you know, 50-year-old dad. Wow. (laughs) So we we were the the bookends in in that class. I ended up focusing on one class. He focused on the, it was like data structures and assembly language. So I focused on data structures. He focused on assembly language. We may have copied each other's homework unconfirmed. And uh, that was a nice. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't hear anything. <laughs> you didn't, no, but none of you, none, nobody heard anything. Nobody um, knows anything. <laughs> nobody knows anything. So I ended up with an A in data structures and a B in assembly language. And my dad ended up with, um, at the University of Wisconsin, they have a grade called an AB, which is exactly what it sounds like. Um, <laughs> so um, I did better in data structures than him, and he did better in assembly language than me. That's kind of how I got into it. And I just sort of kept doing it. My degree, though it is in brain and cognitive science, did involve a good amount of programming because I I started as a computer science major and then sort of switched over. So I concentrated in AI and you could kind of build your own 
little major where you just did stuff that was interesting to you. Uh, so I took gotcha. some like neuroanatomy classes and I took some psych classes and then I took, you know, a bunch of programming and AI classes as well. And this was great because I, I flunked circuits, not once, but twice, and then just decided I wasn't going to do electrical engineering or any, any part of that computer science degree. That's awesome. I mean, so many cool things in there. And I think in a lot of ways it highlights so much of what I'm trying to showcase for people here is like, if nothing else, it's like, here's your permission to go do it differently. And, and you, you surely did. And, and that's probably a good segue into, and I'm, I'm going to set this up a little bit for our listeners because it, it's absolutely fascinating to me. You have this great post out on Quora. I think you answered a, a <laughs> question around what's a different path people took and, and you lay out kind of briefly what it was like to be a professional chef. And for our audience, I want to start by quoting part of this answer and we'll link oh, it up gosh. in the, the show notes because, <laughs> because it's fantastic. It, it hits on so much of what we're, we're trying to do, but you know, ultimately for, for you, Elaine, I'd love for you to share more details about this first job choice and drill in a little bit more on your intro. Because, you know, I'm sure there's there's no doubt that you probably shocked a lot of your friends and families by saying... Well, I shocked my parents, too. They're yeah. like, we, we came to this country, you know, we left everything we had and we brought you here to give you a better life. What? And we just, you know, helped pay for your MIT degree. What the hell are you doing, you jerk? Yeah. Right? <laughs> exactly. So I, I, let's put a pin on that and I want to read this quote because it's so good. And, and and this is quoting, it says, I remember one of my professors urging me to rethink the whole undertaking and recommend that I read Anthony Bourdain's Kitchen Confidential so I'd have some idea what I was getting into. Rather than scaring me off the tales of hedonistic excess, poor decision making, and life on the fringes of acceptability only served to validate my decision. <laughs> God, I forgot. I it's true. Go, <laughs> like, that's amazing. Because here you are, you're a CEO of a startup, and you started off by skipping town, effectively, to, to follow this dream of hedonistic excess. So, like we don't need, we don't need all the gory details, but like, what did you learn out of being a professional chef beyond what you shared at the beginning there? And, yeah, I think. Um... One of the things that I learned that has made me a lot better at my current job, right, is um, dealing with very hard situations, right? People talk a lot about women in tech, right? It's, it's a very relevant topic. I sort of got schooled in a place where it was also not normal to have yeah. a woman, right? But there, you know, it's a lot harsher, right? Nobody cares. And this is harsher for everybody. Um, nobody cares about your self-actualization. Nobody yeah. cares about your career growth, right? It's like either you're going to do the job or you're not. And it's ruthless. And I think that women in kitchens are underdogs in a lot of ways. It used to be that, you know, women weren't really expected to be chefs, right? It was, it was more of a man's job. The physical work is grueling. The hours are grueling. The culture is very, very different. So it was, it was this trial by fire. And I remember, you know, when I left cooking and I, I got my job at ClickTime, I walked into that office on my first day of work and I was like, what if I don't know how to be in polite society anymore? Like what what if what if I'm an animal? <laughs> Can I be trusted here? Um wow. but <laughs> it was like it was like Mowgli like re-entering the, the village a little bit. <laughs> oh wow. <laughs> we probably could do just to show on what happens in the kitchen, but uh that's so interesting though. Like so in, in other words, it, it I'm sure in a lot of ways shaped your work ethic, although it sounds like you already had that if you were I didn't. I was lazy. I had no oh. work. Like it really did. I mean it's it's a different kind of like there's knowledge work, right? And then there's just back breaking like discipline, you know, getting shit done work. I'll make that a little more specific outside yeah. of just the physical aspect, which, you know, arguably didn't make me a better CEO. Like I can stand for long periods, but <laughs> that doesn't like, fortunately I don't have to do that. But what's really cool about working in a kitchen is it makes you so much better at stress and it makes you so much better at multitasking. Right. Mm -hmm. So you're always sort of focused on what is the most important thing that I could be doing right now. You're always in these situations where there's information flying at you and everything is changing quickly. You know, maybe like new orders come in, right? Or you screwed something up and then on top of like the five steaks that you have working already, like something that you sent out comes back because the customer thinks it's raw. 
and you're you're just dealing with all of that. It's it's the most stressful environment I've ever been in, right? So then, you know, now one of the hard things about being a CEO is everybody wants stuff from you all the time. People have questions for you. People need your help, right? And ideally, you know, if you manage your team well and you get people to be self-sufficient and independent, there's less of that. But it doesn't it doesn't go away. And there's a lot of ambiguity, and you don't know what to do. But you know, you just sort of put one foot in front of the other, and you do it. And when you're used to like terror and psychological pain, um, then the new terror and psychological pain is, is not nearly as, as difficult. So, you know, I, I'd, um, I'm, I wouldn't recommend that everybody go work in a kitchen. I think it takes a certain kind of person to, to be willing to do that. But I think just being in really, really tough situations early in your career, you know, the older you get, like the harder it is to have things be really, really hard. But if yeah. you're used to things being really hard, then you can kind of power through it. Uh, well, and not to mention everybody has knives, right? Yeah. The, yes. Everybody has knives all the time and fire. And <laughs> you can only go so far. Like you better not. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's fascinating. I mean, I, I hope someday you write a book because there's, there's more to this, I'm sure. I hope but, I get the opportunity. And if I do that, like at least two people read it, that would be great. Uh, well, <laughs> Other than my parents. <laughs> I, I for one will, but it's interesting. Cause I, I, one of the things I, I love on this show is really like drilling in on inflection points in life because you know, you, you have this moment you're like, okay, I can't do this anymore. It's not the hidden hedonistic life style is, <laughs> you know, I can't work the hours anymore. I just can't do this. And, and I imagine that was pretty challenging, but then you're like, okay, I'm going to go back to coding. And I'm, you know, just going back to your, your comments about why you started your company. Like you don't have a normal resume. Like how do you show up and get a coding job? Yeah. I mean, I, uh, I bombed a lot of technical interviews. I, the, the straw that broke the camel's back for me, where I decided this wasn't for me, is as a cook, I was making like, and this was now 15 years ago. So I was making like 22 grand a year or something, right? My rent was $1,200 a month. <laughs> so you can do the, the math on that. And I decided that I was going to get a second job. So for six months, I worked in a kitchen in the afternoon and evening, and then was an executive assistant at a brokerage firm from like six to one, and then I'd run off to the restaurant. Oh um, and brokerage firm was great because they were on New York hours, which meant that I could start the workday at six. After doing that for a while, it was just, I just couldn't do it anymore. But to, what was, what was the... Well, well so, yeah, yeah. you know, so you, it's not like you have coding on your Oh, resume. that's right. Like you're three, you're three yeah. years in, right? It, yeah. Yeah, it was scary because I was like, you know, not, I mean, I was a decent coder, right? At MIT, I was fine. I wasn't the best. I was okay. But I knew that, you know, all my peers had had three extra years to get really good at stuff. And I was nervous. And at the time I had like, I had gotten a few good, in, like I interned at Morgan Stanley and at Akamai when I was in college, both of which had pretty hard interviews, but they were somehow like they were not the same kinds of interviews that I ended up having to do when I ventured back. Like I hadn't really done a lot of algorithmic <laughs> interviews. And I remember um, there's this one company, which now is, I won't mention which one because I'm embarrassed, but like, <laughs> <laughs> you know, they, they're one of these real estate marketplaces, right? And they had tremendous success. I interviewed there when they were less than, fewer than 10 people. And the CTO at the time put me in front of a whiteboard and asked me to reverse a linked list. And I was like, fuck, what's a linked list? Uh, right? <laughs> yeah. Oh, God. Oh, God. Oh, God. Right. And, um, you know, eventually, to his credit, like, he really held my hand through that problem really well. And eventually, I was like, oh, yeah, they're like pointers. And then you change where they point. Like, okay. <laughs> yeah. But, or you call the function that does it for you. In yeah, the program. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> but, you know, I could tell that that, that wasn't, like, that wasn't going to fly. And it was really humbling. And I had a few of those where I just completely failed. And to ClickTime's credit, like, I thought they had a really great interview process because they just brought me in. I was local. And they put me in front of a computer for an hour and a half or something in a room. And they're like, hey, here's some code. It's broken this way. Like, can you fix it? And also, can you get the UI to do this thing? Hmm. and you can google stuff and i was like that's cool like a, then, the real world yeah so i i did that 
and <laughs> I guess I did it well enough to get a job and then not get fired for five years. So that was nice. Mm. But, you know, I um, this this sort of opens the Pandora's box of technical interviewing is broken, which maybe we'll touch on, maybe we won't, but it yep. kind of is. And I was fortunate that I found a company that had a lot of very smart people and where I learned a lot that didn't interview me uh, in a way that set me up to fail. Hmm, interesting. Yeah, and, and so I suppose that segues really nicely into this move to tech recruiting. I think here's another interesting inflection point, right? Because like you highlighted, tech recruiting is is sales. Let's just be real, right? Like you're selling both to the company who's looking for a candidate and then you're also selling the candidate. So it tends to be populated by folks who are more sales-like. And here you're coming in as somebody who's saying, I'm gonna be different here by the fact that I'm really technically skilled how did the sales side of that develop then? Was that, was that something, you know, I can hear in your voice, you know, in the way you, you talk, you, you have a, a natural way of engaging with people. But like, you know, did you have to learn the sales part of it? And what was that like? I think, you know, I, I kind of hate individuals, but I like people as a group. I don't know, like, I'm pretty like misanthropic as a person, but I like humanity. Um, wow. so, <laughs> you didn't expect it to, to go there. And, you know, I like being around people. So I, I think the fact that I am, I don't know that I'm extroverted, but I'm not like super introverted either. I'm probably somewhere in the middle. I think that helped. I will say that I completely agree with your assessment. People have asked me, is technical recruiting more of a technical undertaking or a sales undertaking and specifically you know taking an extreme case what if somebody's a wonderful engineer right but a terrible salesperson would they be a good recruiter the answer is absolutely not and then you can take somebody who's a wonderful salesperson and is just like the worst at engineering and not only has never done it but has no aptitude for it and will never do it right that person can be a great recruiter there are certainly like tricks of the trade that i picked up but i in a lot of ways i think that you know i could take the fact that i'm naturally not horrible with people i don't know if i'm good <laughs> but at least i'm not bad um then really build credibility with my audience by not acting like a typical recruiter, right? So yeah. even though I am still doing sales, I'm trying to do it uh, in a way that maybe is more genuine than, than what a lot of recruiters do. But in my entire career as a recruiter and running my own firm, right? And I did that for two years, I made a ton of hires. I mean, it was, it was amazing. And I only ever sent something like 80 or 100 outbound emails to candidates. Wow. Uh, because I got very, very lucky because I just wrote stuff like the stuff you read from Quora. I started writing not because I had some kind of content marketing strategy, but because I didn't have candidates coming to me and I didn't know what to do with my time. <laughs> so it kind of started out of boredom and terror. And then it ended up being something that differentiated me from recruiters. So after, you know, after a few months, I started getting this nice volume of inbound where candidates were coming to me because they felt like they could trust me more than um, somebody that wasn't technical. So I think being technical as a recruiter will raise your credibility and help you build rapport with candidates and will also help you do your job because you can understand what people want better and then you can understand what companies do better so you can um, be a better matchmaker. But, you know, I know a lot of great recruiters that have never touched a line of code in their life and they're way better at, way, way, way better at it than I am. Yeah. No, that makes sense. I think, you know, there's some really interesting points there. And I, I think like all of these things kind of culminate into where you are now. And I think in just in the interest of time of, of how, how we're progressing here, so many good stories we could delve into, but I really want to spend some time on interviewing.io and, and in particular your role there now. I think you did a good intro to it uh, coming in into the top of the show. But, uh, you know, I'm kind of curious as to how how it's playing out in terms of day-to-day, like your role in it, and in particular, like what you see shaping up in terms of the way software engineers in particular are on the platform and how they interview. Yeah. Uh, Well, let's see. I'll start with day-to-day. My job has changed a lot. When I first started the company, I wrote code a lot. So I don't know if this is accurate, but like it feels right. I think I wrote maybe 30% of our original product, like the very bare bones prototype. We had a way for candidates and interviewers to match. We had a staple together interviewing platform um, where we used a bunch of third-party tools to make it work. And then we had a rating system. So 
you know, I, I, I did some of that. Fortunately, I had other people to do it that were better uh, over time. And moving forward four years, these days, a lot of my job is fundraising. So, you know, mm. that's a big part of any founder's job is just going around and please, please, please give us some money. <laughs> we're totally good at what we do. We promise. Another part of it is sales. So fortunately now we actually have a very, very good salesperson and a very good customer success person. So less of my day is actually spent on sales calls. But for the first few years, um, I was the only salesperson. So, you know, I'd be doing demos and talking to customers and trying to get companies to use us to hire their engineers. One thing that I still do a lot, and, you know, one might argue like, Aileen, this is really not like a high leverage activity and it's not the best use of your time, so stop doing it. But one of the things that I still do and I really love is content marketing. So, I love writing. I love telling stories. I love telling stories with data in particular because who cares what Aileen thinks, but when Aileen has a graph, all of a sudden, <laughs> you know, people, you just put a graph and people trust you. Also, we're totally telling the truth, but I, I love doing that. So a lot of my time, and now we have a data scientist who's so much better at this than I am, but I still sort of butt my way in sometimes and I'll do some explorations with our data. And what's really neat is we record, so people do these practice interviews and we record everything that happens during them. And then we also have post-interview feedback. So we can do things like, you know, what attributes of interviewers make them more successful? Like what does a good interview look like? How does interview performance tie to a person's years of experience or their resume or things like that? What kinds of employers look for what kinds of candidates? So we just have this wealth of, of data to mine. And if I had my druthers, I'd probably just sit in a cave and mess with our data all day, but I, I can't do that. Um, and you know, one, one thing that more and more has become part of my job is thinking about big picture goals and strategy, right? And thinking about you know, I, I can't do all this anymore. So how do I communicate effectively to the rest of the team what we're doing and why we're doing it and then let them figure out what to do? And that's probably the hardest part because you, you're so used to being an individual contributor and you think you know what to do. But at some point, that's not your job anymore and you have to step back and let other people do it. Yeah, you're now the master chef looking over everybody's shoulder as yeah, and like throwing them. plates at them and stuff. <laughs> uh, well, well, I, 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 I hope you're not throwing plates at anybody. <laughs> well, we'll see. We'll see how the sprint goes. <laughs> oh wow! Alrighty then, I'll, I'll, I'll be sure to check in on the, the health of your engineers after. <laughs> That's fantastic. I mean, I think, you know, you hit on some really key points there, especially the startup CEO, right? Like we've had other CEOs on, but you know, that Jane of all trades in the early days, writing the code, doing the marketing, like that is the life of a founder that I think, you know, you don't see on TV, right? Yep. It's, it's like doing all the things because guess what? There's nobody else to do them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, I remember when I had to answer all of our support emails and now we have like, again, people that are much better at it than I am. And then sometimes I still do it and they yell at me and they're right to yell at me because I shouldn't yeah. be doing that. Yeah, for sure. And just for our listeners sake, as, as full disclosure, I mean, I, I first came across interviewing IO on Reddit and looked it up and it sounded super interesting. And I, uh, part of the, how I, I got in contact with Aileen is, is I just reached out and said, I'm interested in hearing more about the platform. And true to her words, she gave me a demo and I've been participating in a really small amount of my time on it. And, and I can say that the platform is impressive. I think it, it has a lot of opportunity to change the, the way people interview. So that's my, my little plug for it there. Thank you. And like, we're so lucky to have you in our community. Um, you're a really good interviewer. <laughs> oh, thank you. It, it's actually been a lot of fun too. I mean, it, it's helped me brush up on, on some of my skills as well, because in my, in my role in CTO, like I don't do a, a lot of these lower level uh, like coding and system design interviews as much anymore. And, I kind of missed it. So that part's been fun too. Aileen, I think just, you know, usually at this point when I have someone like you on, I, I like to talk about team building and all of that, but I, I think you're in a pretty unique position for our listeners here. And, and I would love if you would actually take a step back a little bit and talk about 
kind of the current state of interviewing and what candidates can do to get better. Obviously, they should be on your platform, but right now I think you're only supporting software engineers and we're trying to broaden that out. As, as someone who's, you know, probably done thousands of interviews in her career, like give us the, the cheat sheet on it all besides, you know, fix your typos and grammar. <laughs> Is this in general or for software engineers specifically? I think we can, let, let's, let's consider tech roles. Tech roles. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm going to sort of turn this around a little bit or kind of uh, broaden the question because I think that for many people, especially junior people, the hardest thing isn't actually the interview. I mean, you should, especially if you're a budding software engineer, you should get good at algorithmic interviews because you're just going to, you don't want to be like me standing there being like, what's a linked list? Because then you look dumb. <laughs> so don't do that. <laughs> but, you know, the, the hardest part isn't that. Like that you have control over if you drill or, you know, if you're doing product management interviews, you're probably going to have case studies. And uh, there are books about, you know, what you're going to get asked and you can practice and put in, you know, 20, 30 hours a week for a few months, and then you're going to be really good at interviewing. Like that's, it's a solvable, it's annoying. It's a lot of work, but it is a solvable problem. Yeah. I think that what's hard for a lot of people is one step up the funnel, which is even getting the chance to have an interview in the first place, right? Mm. So like, how do you even get your foot in the door? How do you get noticed? And that feels a lot less deterministic, right? Because you yeah. can, um, True of a sales job, true of recruiting, right? You can send out a ton of applications and apply a bunch of places and, you know, you have no control over what happens. And a lot of the time when you're getting rejected, it might not even be because a person, you know, everyone thinks, oh, if, if I got rejected, whoever read my resume or my cover letter saw through all of my bullshit or they saw to the core of who I am and found out all these flaws that I'm trying to keep a secret. Like that's, that's how it feels a, a lot of the time. And that's actually not true because most of the time people are not actually reading your stuff. Yeah, It's, so, filtered, um, it's filtered automatically by yeah, green, just, greenhouse or one of those. Yeah, uh, exactly. Services. Yeah. Or, or, you know, um, nobody just looks at it ever and you just never hear back. And then after a while they're like, okay, these, these candidates are stale. Nobody's looked yet. It's been a few months. Let's just reject everybody. Yeah. Um, sad, <laughs> so, truth. sad truth, right? So if there is any advice I can offer that's useful and something that, you know, I know a little more about and can uniquely say is like, don't get discouraged by that and think of, think of it as a hustle, right? So yeah. what can you do to get noticed? One of the best things you can do is let's say you're a junior software engineer and maybe you just finished a boot camp. Now, there are a ton of people that look like you on paper because a bunch of people just finished a boot camp and they're all like applying on angel lists to companies. The best thing you can do is try to find some engineers or like eng managers at those companies and you can just go on LinkedIn and, you know, find people that work there. Guess their email. Like don't use LinkedIn because engineers, yep. I think, and product people generally don't spend a lot of time on there. And just reach out to them and write something compelling about yourself that, you know, shows that you care about something and are interested in something. Um, what's even easier is if you read Hacker News a lot or, or you know, certain Reddit subreddits, right? Find stuff that people have submitted. Um, maybe it's even a company blog post on a subject that's interesting to you and say, hey, this is really cool. This is the kind of stuff I want to work on. Here's something that I've done of this ilk. And maybe there's something we can do together. And if, if you're systematic about that kind of outreach, just do it over email guess their email address. Generally, it's like first name at company name.com or first, like first initial last name at company name.com. Um, just do that. And, and that's going to serve you so much better. And if you're a junior candidate, I'd also advise like not reaching out to recruiters because they're typically not concerned with junior roles nearly as much. Yeah. Um, they have their own like hard to fill niche senior roles that they're spending most of their time on. So find the people that are actually doing the work and forge a, a genuine connection with them based on common interests and, and common professional interests. Yeah, that's fantastic advice. I mean, and you just gave away my email. So, <laughs> you you know what's really funny though? What? I don't think I've ever had anybody directly email me. Well, what would you do? It like let's do the thought experiment. Like I let's get say, the recruiters yeah. all the time, and those go pretty pretty much straight to spam. Of the, especially the ones who are offering me something, you know? <laughs> and there's like this implied consent that I agree to their candidate and. 
And I'm like, you know, I could just go Google that person without even you even telling me their name. They'll send me this redacted resume and I'll just be like, it literally takes two seconds to find yep. a redacted resume on totally. redacted on the internet. So, <laughs> like, you know, I don't have a relationship with you, but hey, thanks yeah. for the can. I've never actually done that, but I always feel like doing that. Like you could. Yeah. Yeah. And there's no, there's no contract and no. You know, shame on you. Yep. But yeah, no, that's an interesting thought experiment. I uh, <laughs> I almost hesitate to even go down that path because I already get too much email. Well, I put you in a position. But like, imagine if you got like a really thoughtful email from someone's list, like, yeah. hey, you know, um, I did this thing with natural language processing as this project. And, you know, here's a, like, you know, you'd probably at least respond and you might yeah. kick them to somebody else. Right. Because you might yeah. not respond yourself, but you'd probably forward it. And in um, fact, I do that because I, I have had, uh, actually, I had a high school student do this exactly to me. Like, hey, Grant, I, I just want to talk. And, and, and it's not even an interview or asking for an interview. You're not asking for an interview. Like often the way is in is say, hey, I was wondering if I could get some advice from you. Or yeah. Oh, yeah. I could pick your brain on what your job is day to day, right? Like I've had that happen. And yeah. that's been amazing. And then I end up being like, oh, okay, let me help this person out. Well, what's that line? Like when you want money, ask for advice. And when you want advice, ask for money. Like it's there you go. <laughs> yeah. So true. Wow. You know, that's, that's awesome, Aileen. I, I really love it. And I think you, you did a great job of giving some really actionable tidbits for our listeners there. I, I want to finish up with a couple of questions I like to ask everybody, you know, and, and the first one is, kind of, I have this saying, you know, jobs and careers aren't all sunshine and rainbows. And, you know, you hit on, especially the professional chef side, but I'm wondering, you know, especially these days, what's the best thing about the job and what's the most challenging? The best thing about the job is when I get to build product. That doesn't mean I'm building it myself, right? But when I get to sit down and, you know, talk with my team about what features would be cool to build and then figure out how to build them, right? It's just this idea of like, you have freedom to do, to create something that you care about. And mm -hmm. as, as a founder it's, and that has a team, it's even cooler because you're not the only one doing it, right? So things can get done a lot faster and other people have better ideas than you have. And just like seeing product happen that you want it to happen and being able to be creative with other smart people is is the best it's like the best feeling in the world so a second true. best is like writing something and then it being like upvoted a lot on hacker news and then just seeing like that smart people that care about tech also care about what you're doing all that um, uh worthless internet karma is, yeah i love it i'm addicted i can't fantastic. can't get enough <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah that's that's like the best part um the worst part is like when you're thwarted from doing that by logistical, like um, I hate fundraising. Um, there are parts of it that I really enjoy. You know, sometimes you meet a like-minded person and they really believe in what you're doing and you just have this like mental connection and your mind meld and, and, you know, um, they've seen a lot of other stuff and they think your stuff is better and they believe enough in you to give you money. But like, a lot of the time it's not that, right? Like I think the worst part is pitching your baby to people that couldn't give two shits about your baby, right? And yeah. trying to position it as something that it isn't. Well, not that it isn't, but like there are things that I love about interviewing IO that aren't necessarily the things that VCs might love about interviewing IO. That doesn't mean they're not true, but like repositioning your narrative as, as something that somebody that isn't familiar with your space can understand and then having to like tell that story. That's, that's not something I enjoy as much. Yeah. Now for sure. And especially just, you know, like 200 no's to get to that one. Yes. Uh, can be especially trying, but, but I mean that, you know, that's the forged in fire, like, like, cutting in the kitchen right and yep that's yeah you just i mean eventually you're dead inside and it's like all right it's, <laughs> it's give me another no because then it means i'm closer to yes <laughs> and you, you it's it's true but just that that journey like because I, I i'm like man i could be at the office like whiteboarding some cool cool ideas right i could be writing things and no i'm i'm here talking about bar graphs and stuff and yeah. it's it's fine that's part of the job but it's it's not and some founders get a thrill from it i'm not one of them yeah for sure i i can i can totally understand where you're coming from having been through them um but you know i always found once i reframed it and you know like you find that partner who's on your side and and that's all the difference because i know yeah. i know we had vc partners who stood by us in some pretty dark times and and it 
it made all the difference in, in Same here. the company's Same here. success. So uh, wrapping up then, I let you get back to your, your day here. Uh, I'm curious. <laughs> <I'm> plate throwing. <laughs> yeah. You know, besides Anthony Bourdain's kitchen confidential, which of course we'll, we'll link up in the show notes. I'm wondering, um, you know, if there's, been any particular resources like a book or a podcast or you know i don't know a course or a mentor that's been particularly helpful for you along the way so i'll make like a, a confession i don't really read <laughs> i don't right. know i hate like management books generally i think they're written by people that have never managed but the the best management book i ever read was this like army field guide called small unit leadership <laughs> yeah, um, nice. yeah it, it's it's about i think it's like something that's given out to like new platoon re, uh, platoon leaders right um or squad leaders and they're like here's how you motivate your troops right or like what what's your is it like a situation where your troops have low skill and high motivation or is it like low motivation and you know low skill and like what do you do in in all these different situations and it's very very practical so i'd recommend that but I think in my first time CEO journey, the thing that's been most useful to me is mentorship. And it's been mentorship from a very select group of people where I know that I am okay looking stupid in front of those people, right? I'm very fortunate, like my, my boyfriend's also a founder and he's been through it a few times. So just like being able to ask him for advice is okay because he already knows I'm stupid. So it doesn't matter if he Aww. finds it out, right? Alien, come on. <laughs> he hasn't figured it out yet. Well, we're still waiting. We won't tell him that either. <laughs> we, won't, we won't tell him that. Yeah. Let's not tell my dad. Like, like don't tell anyone anything. Um, but no, just like people like that, whether it's a friend who's been through it or, you know, just other founders, whether they're close friends or not, but like people that you trust enough to just be vulnerable in front of and be yeah. like, hey, what does this acronym mean? Like people keep saying it, right? <laughs> like yeah. when in early on, I would just, when I was first pitching interviewing IO, um, I, I'd go to these meetings and then VCs would ask me questions and I would just like say something and then I'd like write down the words they said because I didn't know what they meant. <laughs> and then yeah. I'd go home and be like, what is what is this? You know. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so just like getting that like advice from the trenches that's very honest and some of it will never be on a blog, but just yeah. like do this, don't do that. Just having people like that that you can you can trust For is, sure. is I think really important. I always tell people my two favorite quote unquote business books. The one the one legit one that is real like real talk for CEOs, uh, I will pass along is Ben Horowitz's book, mm -hmm. the, hard, the hard thing about hard about things. hard things. That that yeah. book is the only book that ever is like this person has operated and they've put it in words. My other one is actually a rock climbing book <laughs> of all <laughs> things called the uh, the, uh, the Rock Warrior's Way. But it, it sounds like you're it's similar, you know, like on. Like, hey, you're reading I've seen, the Army I've book. seen both of those books on the counter, actually, at home. I just, I haven't read them, but they're, yeah. they're there in the house. <laughs> those, those are my two favorite for kind of what, you know, having been in the founder position and all that. Those two, like, yeah, I mean, there's always little nuggets in any of the other books, but you're right. Most of them are you know, take with a grain of salt. So I, I appreciate the, uh, the frankness. Honest, yes. <laughs> I, I don't read. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> well, so then I'm curious, wrapping up, you know, like what advice would you give folks this time? I mean, you gave a bunch of great advice for interviewing, but like as you step back and look back on your career, I mean, and it, it's, it's really cool how all these pieces kind of fit together, even though I'm sure they didn't feel like they did at the time. Yeah, they definitely didn't. I also like, I didn't, realize how well they fit together until my dad was like, hey, has it occurred to you that the way you think about hiring was probably shaped by your experience in kitchens? And I was like, no, I, ha oh, wait, you're absolutely right. That has <laughs> changed how I look at everything. And I just never realized it. Thank you. You know, <laughs> mm -hmm. so uh, the advice I would have is if you, and this, this isn't true for everybody, right? Like some people don't have the privilege of being able to follow their dreams, right? They just have to earn a paycheck. Yeah. I was fortunate to where I could take three years and, and do something completely out of left field. But 
within reason, I think just like pick stuff that's interesting to you. And it doesn't matter if it's, I mean, I remember one of the things that really upset me when I was a senior in college is all my friends were just horrified, right? Or like even juniors, like it was this um, holy grail was to get an internship at like back then, you know, Oracle was cooler than it is now. So like, oh, let's get an internship at Oracle or get an internship at Microsoft, which is now cool again. And I guess like Google wasn't really, Google was around already, but it wasn't as, as known. But like you had to get that perfect internship and then that put you on this path to the f- perfect full, first full-time job. And then, you know, you'd have your five-year plan. And uh, there's just so much terror about making a misstep. And in reality, like nobody cares. The thing that makes people good at their jobs and ultimately valuable is expertise. So what's the best way to build expertise? Well, you do things you're interested in. And then while you have the luxury of doing that, you try to understand why. So Mm. rather than just like doing your job, be like, why are things the way they are? How does this work? How does that work? And just be curious and be earnest and care. And that's a lot easier to do when it's something you care about, right? Yeah. So if you're fortunate enough, pick things that you're interested in, maybe even take a financial hit if you can, right? I was in massive credit card debt by the end of my cook journey. Mm. And that's why I had to take my second job. I, you know, I ended up being fortunate and, and I had some money saved from college because I ran a tutoring business on the side and I had a nice internship at Akamai. Did. Yeah. So like between those, like I was, I was okay, but you know, that money ran out and I had to figure out something else, but just do things with, with intent and care about them. And it's okay if you do something else. And as long as you're, like present and you're interested in in the subject matter and you're asking questions, the universe will somehow reveal to you what ultimately we're supposed to be doing. But until you try stuff and until you uh, accumulate that expertise, there's no point in in doing anything, I think, because you're probably going to pick something wrong and then you're just going to live in terror. Mm. Well, and then work your ass off. Right. Work your ass off also, yeah. which is great when it's for, you know, something that you believe in. Otherwise, it's miserable. Like, yeah. I, I, I'm happy to work, you know, I'm, I'll die at my desk here if I have to, right? Because I, <laughs> I love this company, but, you know, it would be terrible if I were doing something I didn't care about. Yeah. Aileen, really great advice in there. Where can our listeners best learn more from you? Where can they follow you? Where can they read some of this great content you have? Yeah, I guess Twitter is probably the best place because I, whenever I write something, I tweet it out and then I tweet out all sorts of other random crap. Um, but most of it is is related to interviewing or hiring or, or snark. So my, my Twitter handle is Aileen Lerner LLC because that was the name of my recruiting firm. <laughs> awesome. We'll be sure to, we'll be sure to link that up. Aileen, thank you again for joining us. So many fascinating stories in there. I could easily keep going, but it was really great to have you on the show. It was an honor and a privilege. And thank you for asking me really interesting questions that gave me a chance to rant. I appreciate that very much. You're welcome. And of course, for our listeners, thank you for taking the time to listen. I'm sure you'll find uh, that this was a a really memorable interview as you reflect (laughs) back on it. As always, if you like the show, we'd love for you to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or Apple Podcasts or whatever they're calling it these days or whatever any of the other podcast apps are that are out there. You can also visit us at developmentor.com to hear older episodes and find other content on careers in technology and including that referral code to interviewing.io so you can practice interviewing as well. Most importantly, if you like this show, please tell your friends. Referrals are what tell us whether we're doing right. Referrals make the world go round. (laughs) Referrals make the world go round. It's all about relationships. Also, if you have feedback on this episode or any episode, or you'd like to be a guest, drop us an email at podcastsatdevelopmentor.com. Finally, we here at Developmentor hope that each and every episode helps you move that one step closer to finding your path.